mindfulness as we study it is a simple process of noticing new things. And as you notice new things, that puts you in the present, that makes you sensitive to context and perspective. And it's a, a process of engagement, so it feels good. And as you're noticing new things, you come to see, gee, you didn't know it as well as you thought you did. And so then your attention naturally goes to it. So it's very easy, and it's the essence of what we're doing when we're having fun. I'm Salisa Steele. I'm Jeff Cobb, and this is the Leading Learning Podcast. Welcome to episode 336, which features a conversation with the esteemed Dr. Ellen Langer. This is an encore airing of an interview from our archives. Dr. Ellen Langer is a social psychologist and a Harvard professor. In fact, she was the first female professor to gain tenure in the psychology department at Harvard. She's a Guggenheim Fellow and the recipient of numerous awards and honors for her work on mindfulness that spans more than 40 years. She's written 11 books and more than 200 research articles for general and academic readers on mindfulness. Her best-selling books include Mindfulness, The Power of Mindful Learning, On Becoming an Artist, Reinventing Yourself Through Mindful Creativity, and Counterclockwise, Mindful Health and the Power of Possibility. In recent years, mindfulness has become a popular topic, but Ellen began researching and writing about mindfulness long before it became trendy. Sometimes called the mother of mindfulness, Ellen is a true pioneer in a Western view of mindfulness. Mindfulness for her is not about meditation or mantras. Rather, she defines mindfulness as the simple process of actively noticing new things. And she contrasts this with the state of mindlessness that we tend to exist in most of the time. There is a strong connection between mindfulness and learning and a strong connection between mindlessness and not learning. Those connections and their implications are areas Jeff and Ellen explore in this conversation. Jeff and Ellen spoke in July 2017, and this episode originally aired in 2017. I'm looking forward to discussing mindfulness as it relates to learning and possibly even touching on creativity and health, because I know those are topics that uh, you've also explored relative to, to mindfulness. But to start off with, obviously, you've become known by many as the mother of mindfulness because of all the valuable work that you've done on that topic. But clearly, that's not where you started out. In fact, I'll often tell people that you were basically doing mindfulness before mindfulness was cool, or at least that's how I see it, you know, back when at least nobody in the West was really paying a lot of attention to it. So right. how did that happen? How did you come to be so focused on mindfulness as an area of study? Okay, well, it was back in the early 70s. And what happened was I would walk into a mannequin and I'd say, I'm sorry. <laughs> I would watch people do the strangest of things. And so initially I was studying mindlessness, which seemed to be pervasive. And 40 years of research since the original work has shown that virtually all of us are mindless almost all of the time. And the problem is when you're mindless, you're not there to know you're not there. So everybody thinks they're mindful. And then we have this silly instruction that people give to us, and they say, well, be in the moment. 
Mm. But the problem is, again, when you're not there, you're not there to know you're not there. So you need to do more than that. And it's probably a good time to for your listeners to understand what we mean by mindfulness, Definitely. Uh, which, again, we've been studying all this time. This is uh, not meditation. Meditation is fine, but meditation is simply a tool to lead you to post-meditative mindfulness. Right? Mindfulness, as we study it, is a simple process of noticing new things. And as you notice new things, that puts you in the present, that makes you sensitive to context and perspective, and it's a, a process of engagement, so it feels good. And as you're noticing new things, you come to see, gee, you didn't know it as well as you thought you did. And so then your attention naturally goes to it. So it's very easy, and it's the essence of what we're doing when we're having fun. You mentioned in the introduction that people have this mistaken notion of no pain, no gain. And my view is, if there's pain, of course there should be gain. But one can gain without pain, and does so in the process of being mindful. You know, if you were listening to a comedy... And or simply a joke. What makes a joke funny is that you're led one way, and all of a sudden you see, oh, it had this other meaning. And so if you realize that laughing is a result of laughing at jokes, for example, is a result of our being mindful, then the question that often comes to mind about isn't it difficult to do goes away. Wouldn't it be nice just to be laughing and happy all day long? And then you also mentioned creativity. Now, when I first started studying mindfulness, I could have called it creativity. The reason I didn't was because we have a mindless notion of creativity, where what's important is the final product. And mindfulness is a process. And when you're mindful, what happens is the product is usually better. Right? So when you're mindful, you're noticing new things, the neurons are firing, and it's literally and figuratively life-supporting and encouraging people live longer, and they feel better. And so you've you know, just said that it's really just the simple process of actively noticing new things. That's really what mindfulness comes down to. I've also heard you say that to be mindful is to be confident and uncertain simultaneously, yes, I, I guess. Right. Could, well, what hap- yeah, what happens is that when you notice new things about the things you thought you knew, you come to see, gee, I didn't know it as well as I thought I did. And the fact of the matter is that everything is always changing. Everything looks different from different perspectives. And when we think we know, we're essentially being mindless. We're letting the past determine the present rather than be in the present. So what happens is you go to school, your parents, when you're young, and they give you all these facts. And each of these facts are situated in a context, but you're not told that. So you come to think you know. And if you know, then there's no need to pay any attention. But you can't know because everything is changing. So when I lecture on this, I might say to people, how much is one in one? Mm. Here's a fact that everybody thinks they know. And so people dutifully say two. But it turns out one plus one isn't always two. That if you are adding one pile of sand to one pile of sand, one plus one is one. One pile of laundry to one pile of laundry, one plus one is one. In fact, if you think deeply about it, or even casually, you come up with the realization that one plus one doesn't equal two in the real world probably as often as it does. 
So it's the simple thing that we think we knew, one plus one. Imagine with our understanding of people, of their needs, of their likes, dislikes, personalities. You know, you call somebody by a particular name, you know, uh, describing their behavior, and you say, gosh, this person is just so gullible. And you're being mindless for several reasons. One, and the more important one, is that behavior makes sense from the actor's perspective, or else the actor wouldn't do it. So nobody gets up in the morning and says, you know, today I'm going to be gullible. So what is that person intending? And it turns out people who are gullible are being trusting. People who we might see as impulsive are being spontaneous. People who we see as, um, oh, I don't know, as inconsistent are being flexible. turns out that every description we have can be understood in an equally powerful but oppositely valenced way. And that leads us to be less judgmental. And that leads us then to be less uh, concerned about other people judging us. And life is just easier. So after 40 years of research on this, we find the simple act of noticing. We did some of the early studies with older people. They lived longer. It's good for one's health. It's the experience of engagement so you feel good. People, when you're mindful, see you as more attractive and more charismatic. And the products you produce are better. So it's a win, 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 win. And the fact that it's easy as that last win. Well, now, it makes me wonder as I'm listening to you. I mean, it sounds like, or it could, it, what you're saying could be interpreted as kind of all knowledge is contextual, all knowledge is relative to a certain extent, that it's, that potentially you can't be certain about anything. And I mean, it's so sort of the, I guess the argument against mindfulness, not that I would really embrace this myself, but does it, you know, it, it, it sounds scary in a way to well, be mindful yeah, to be that open. Right. That's smart of you, Jeff. But in fact, it, what right happens right now is that people pretend because they think they know they don't know. They think you might know, and they hope that they can get away with not knowing mm. by pretending. So they're making what I call a personal attribution for uncertainty. I don't know, but it's knowable. What people need to do is make a universal attribution for uncertainty. I don't know. You don't know. Nobody knows. And then you can stand tall, and the best, I think, posture essentially is to be confident but uncertain. Right. So there's nothing scary about not knowing. At Tagoras, we're experts in the global business of lifelong learning, and we use our expertise to help clients better understand their markets, connect with new customers, make the right investment decisions, and grow their learning businesses. We achieve these goals through expert market assessment, strategy formulation, and platform selection services. If you're looking for a partner to help your learning business achieve greater reach, revenue, and impact, learn more at tagoras.com services. Well, now, it, it makes me think, though, a little bit of our, you know, current context, at least in the U.S. and perhaps in other places, and this is far from a political podcast, and I don't want to really go down the political rabbit hole, but it, it seems to me that there is perhaps a bit of a mindfulness problem out there right now, just the general openness to learning, to mindful learning, that there seems to be a lot of resistance to that. I mean, the do you, do you feel that way? Is anything different now from how it's been before? Not since Trump is elected, that's what you're <laughs> quietly implying. I started this 40 years ago, 
and over 40 years ago. And at that time, as you rightly said, that nobody had heard of it. And today, it's hard to open up a magazine or listen to newscasters, not talking about Trump, where they don't use the word mindful. Mm -hmm. So, in fact, it's become part now, very often they're using it incorrectly, and they don't, they only have a meditation kind of understanding of mindfulness. But no, I think the world is more and more open to all of this. And, you know, but obviously that we're going through a rough time right now. I was doing one of these interviews right after Trump was elected, and the interview had nothing to do with politics, but it was a call-in show, and those are the only questions I got, you know. <laughs> I mean, I'm not, so I'm not going to, I'm not going to speak to it. I think that certainly mindlessness is prevalent in many quarters. As I said before, most people, because people think they know, so when they know, they're closed. They're not open to what's happening. And when you become mindful, what happens is you can take advantage of opportunities that you otherwise wouldn't notice, and you also avert the danger not yet arisen. But you can't know everything, and that's why, you know, people, you know, understand about unintended consequences. Right. So you go forward thinking it's going to be good, and ups, there's this downside, or you think it's going to be a downside, and ups, there's this upside that you hadn't considered. Right. Because we don't know. So if an individual wants to become a more mindful learner, this is something she's just seeking to do. You know, on the one hand, it's just simply noticing new things. But, you know, we have the habits of a lifetime that can be hard to suddenly switch into doing. I mean, are there practices that, that you would have well, people undertake? Yeah, there are things people can do. They're not practices. That's, you know, practice is something people don't want to do. And if you're going to meditate, you know, they call that a practice where you have to learn how to sit still for 20 minutes twice a day and say your mantra and what have you. This is very different. This is being out in the world. And if you could do nothing else but establish a mindset for uncertainty, you'd do just fine. Other than that, that, you know, when life is working, it doesn't matter. When life isn't working for us, that's the time that people naturally seek solutions without being trained. They just say, oh, my goodness. You know, and so stress, for instance, is a major problem for people all over the world. I get this question about, you know, how can people not be stressed when there's so much to know? And the fact of the matter is there's no much more to know than there was in the past. The difference is that people think that the more they know, the better they'll do. And there's no evidence for that. When, you know, when you're stressed, stress relies, stress is mindless. It relies on two things. First, the belief that something is going to happen. And second, that when it happens, it's going to be awful. Well, it's easy to combat both of those. The first thing we need to do is ask ourselves, you know, give yourself three, five, you know, um, three, there's no magic number. But let's say three reasons why it might not happen. Well, as soon as you do that, you immediately become less stressed because you went from it's definitely going to happen to it might not happen. Now, let's assume that it does happen. Evaluations are in our heads. They're not in the things we're evaluating. So if we say it's going to happen, how might that actually be a good thing? So now you have this thing that you thought was going to be devastating and definitely going to happen. So it may happen, it may not. And if it happens, there'll be good parts of it, bad parts of it. It all depends on how I choose to view it and then stress dissipates. Right. Um, exercises that people can do, first, every time you hear yourself say something like, it's obvious, 
or you see your, you know, because nothing is obvious since everything looks different from different perspectives. Every time you see yourself as judgmental, you call somebody something, you see them in some pejorative way, you're being mindless. You turn around and say, well, how might that very behavior have made sense from that person's perspective? Aside from all of that, that you walk out your door and notice three things that you didn't see before. You come back in the door if you're living with somebody. Notice three to five things about that person. And just keep doing this with, you know, if you're having an interview, ask three different questions from the questions you've written down for yourself. So the idea is just keep taking the thing you know and turning it inside out and around. And what happens is over time you come to see, gee, I didn't know. And again, then once you're in that position, when you're standing tall, because again, you know nobody knows, so it's okay not to know, then what happens is you're naturally mindful. You don't have to work at it. To, to change the frame just a, a little bit, we were discussing before uh, we started recording that most of the people who are listening to Leading Learning are in, in some way or another involved in what we characterize as the business of lifelong learning. So they're offering conferences, seminars, doing online learning, you know, professional education, continuing education, those sorts of things. What would you say to those people to help them deliver uh, or facilitate, I don't know what the right word is, uh, learning experiences that are going to be more conducive to mindful learning? I mean, can you help to architect a more mindful learning experience? I think so. I think in the choice of speakers who attend these conferences, I mean, obviously, if people are going to be lecturing on mindfulness, people are learning about mindfulness. But if you had a conference on X and you got some leading authority on Y mm -hmm. to give it, that would be interesting because people would say, well, how is this related? And since everything is related, they would be more mindful. I think that people have a mistaken notion that, you know, we said before, no pain, no gain, and that one can gain, should be gaining all the time. Well, we also have that idea with respect to learning. Mm -hmm. Learning is fun. And so what should happen is that all of these conferences, everything that's being done should be fun doing it. And if it's not, then you need to do it differently. And when you're having fun at it, then you're going to be mindful. And when you're setting up an event for other people, rather than focus solely on the transmission of information from one person to a group of people, make it fun for everybody. That's a definite win because at the end of the conference, people will have had a good time. Right. And you know, they will probably have learned something anyway. So you'll only get points for that. Well, and related to that, I mean, many of these same groups that, that I'm referencing that, you know, are, are putting on different types of learning experiences, delivering different types of educational opportunities. It's become a trend now, a focus for many organizations to have, you know, a recognized body of knowledge, set of competencies, basically a, a uniform set of knowledge that people have to master, and then they're going to get certified for that. And that certification is, you know, supposedly going to indicate that they have learned what they need to learn to do what they're supposed to do. I mean, how does mindfulness jibe with that you know, certification and that whole approach to kind of competency and bodies of knowledge? Yeah, well, it's interesting. Let me give you an answer that's far afield. So people may say that watching television is bad, all right? 
but television is neither good nor bad. It's the way you watch it. And so, too, with a certification process. You know, you can have a rigid set of rules and teach that people had better follow each of these rules just as they're laid out, and that sounds very mindless. If you found a way to make each of the rules a little more tentative, you know, if somebody who might not have the competencies that are in that list but have many other competencies, that you wouldn't want to just reject the person. You know, at a place like Harvard, where I teach, that we have rules, and then if somebody wants to petition for something quite different, and we listen, and most of the time they're granted permission. So the way to appreciate anything being mindful or mindless is when it's mindless, it tends to be rigid, and you follow things regardless of whether they make sense in the particular context or not. All right, that mindlessness is where the past is dictating the present. And mindfulness is a looser, more conditional structure. Mm. You know, and, and just in, if you're teaching material, for instance, the material itself to be taught mindfully would be, it would seem that it could be one way of looking at it rather than is. You know, one plus one is often two. In certain theories, one plus one is two, but in the real world, not always. Right. You know, so, you, so you teach the deviation. The lifelong learning, anything that's true for lifelong learning should really be lifelong, meaning it should start earlier on. All learning should be fun. All learning should be conditional. And I think that the lifelong learners themselves probably would benefit from some of the research that people like myself do. Hmm. You know, we have a lot of research with older folk where we make them mindful, they live longer, they're happier, and they're healthier. A dramatic study. Do you know my counterclockwise study? I, I am familiar with it, yes. Okay, so let me just briefly, for any listener who doesn't know it, yes, what definitely. we did was to take older adults, and these were men in their 80s, and that was back in 79 when 80 was 80, not the new 60. <laughs> right. And so they were really old by all of our stereotyped notions of what it means to be old. And we were going to have them live in a retreat for a week that had been retrofitted to 20 years earlier. And they were going to be living there and speaking in the present tense about the past. So what we were trying to do was to take their minds and have them be who they were 20 years earlier. And we had control groups and so on. And what we found in a period of time as short as a week, those men in this group who were their younger selves, so to speak, their vision improved, their hearing improved, their memory improved, their strength improved, and they looked noticeably younger by the end of the study. So the reason for teaching things like this to lifelong learners is to make them aware that there are much greater possibilities than most people assume. Yeah, it's a fascinating study. I really love that. And uh, I mean, I think it brings home, we were talking earlier about, you know, context, and it really brings home how important context really is. It also makes you think that, you know, so much about health, about aging, about things like, you know, creativity and innovation, that, you know, to the extent that our, our negative views of those are kind of our, our, our negative ways of being around those are really learned behaviors to a certain extent. I mean, you know, exactly. we can't all live for... No, exactly. Yeah. Well, the, you know, first of all, I have four different studies, and these are controlled experiments, where people are living longer. 
But I think that what people should focus on, rather than adding more years to their life, is to add more mm-hmm. life to their years. Definitely. Well, I know in, in terms of, you know, you living life fully, you do so many things that besides your focus on mindfulness, you, you yourself are an artist, yes. I know, and I've looked at some of your work online, which is great to, to see. And I, one of the questions we like to ask everybody who uh, comes on to the show is about their own sort of lifelong learning habits and practices, whether that's around art or, you know, anything else that, that you're doing uh, might be professionally as well. I mean, I'm going to make the assumption that you are a mindful, lifelong learner, but um, are there particular, you know, methods, practices, habits, any, anything you do to help cultivate and promote your own lifelong learning? Other than follow the advice that I've just given all your listeners, mm. probably not. You know, that life gets easier as you get older. You become aware that all, the, you know, when you're two years old and you fall down and you scrape your leg and it's, oh, my God, the world's going to end. And when you're eight years old and Johnny or Janie doesn't invite you or send you a valentine in elementary school, oh, my God, the world's going to end. And this goes on. Right. You know, at some point you get to the point where, you see, it's not going to be so terrible. Yeah. In a, one of my books, which is called The Art of Noticing, where I pair one-liners that have been culled from research over 40 years with paintings of mine. Ah. One that I like in particular is, you know, ask yourself, is it a tragedy or an inconvenience? And most of the time when we're younger, we're reacting to things as if they're tragedies, when in fact they're only inconveniences. So simply asking yourself that. And, you know, so I've done this for so many years that at this point I'm pretty calm. (laughs) And I... I'm just one of these happy people. Um, What can I say? Dr. Ellen Langer is a leading expert and pioneer in the field of mindfulness. In the show notes for this episode at leadinglearning.com slash episode 336, you'll find links to websites where you can learn more about her important and insightful work. And we know it can be easy to tune out our final comments, but stay mindful for a moment more. At leadinglearning.com slash episode 336, you'll also see options for subscribing to the podcast. And we'd be grateful if you would subscribe if you haven't yet, as subscriptions give us some data on the impact of the podcast. We'd also be grateful if you would rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, especially if you find the Leading Learning Podcast valuable. Jeff and I personally would appreciate it, and reviews and ratings help us show up when people search for content on leading a learning business. Go to leadinglearning.com apple to leave a rating. Lastly, please help us grow the leading learning community. At leadinglearning.com episode 336, there are links to find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Thanks again, and see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast. Yeah.